Welcome to the P4C Podcast. We are excited to reshare with you the last 12 years of teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. Each week, the P4C Podcast delivers rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. Our current series is from P4C 2017, Resolved, Why the Reformation Matters Today. We now join Charles Cavanaugh for today's message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. I want to start by just reading one passage because I thought of this passage as I was studying and putting together uh, this, uh, what my pastor would call a flyover uh, of the Reformation, Reformation history in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, especially verse 18, it's not my text, but I don't have a text per se. That's strange for me to get up and not have a text, but um, you probably won't appreciate the irony of that. But Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are changed or transformed, metamorphosized is the, we, we get the word metamorphosis, we drive it from the word there. We are changed from glory into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And it seemed as, as I was approaching this subject of Sempra, or Semper Reformata, if you've seen the Marines' um, slogan, it's Semper, it actually should be Fee, but they don't pronounce it like the Greek, Semper Fi, Semper Fi, always faithful, ever faithful. Um, and Semper Reformata, always reforming. If you know something of your history, you know that the battle cry for uh, the Mexican-American War became, remember the Alamo, because that battle was fought at such cost, but it also created a time barrier, a space for the rest of the U.S. forces that helped them to gain some ground and prepare for uh, uh, fighting the rest of the war against Santa Ana and his pretty significant army. Well, in this case, over time, this phrase came to be something of a, a call, a watchword. And it has become for those of a reformed mindset, of a reformed bent, even today, and should be for the, the people of God, and that is we are always reforming. Much like this verse, it's not that we... Uh, we look and say we have all these errors. We have certain fundamentals of the faith that were hammered out over years and certainly from Scripture. And yet, we're always in need of growing from one stage of glory to another by God's Spirit. And that's true for us individually. It's true for us as corporate people of God, as the church of God. <clears throat> well, the, um, Matt brought this up earlier, President's last night, when he said something about history, how many people are really interested in history, and, uh, and uh, how many here, how many have gone to college, first of all, you've gone, or are going, or have finished, how many of you majored in history? That's what I thought. 
Okay, man. I can see my task is cut out for me. No, not too many people major in history unless they want to teach it or unless there's just some strange interest in old stuff, you know, like me. I majored in history and business administration, but that was a long time ago. And, uh, uh, but how many of you like to st talk about or like the study of history at all? Well, there's a, maybe half or a little more, okay. Well, that helps. <coughs> but how important is the past? I was talking with um, one of our guests earlier. And if you take your cues from modern academia, you would likely say that it's of minimal importance. If you went to public schools and if you've gone to college and, and public colleges, um, the, the move has been away from knowing history or if we know it, then we feel like we have to debunk it. We have to straighten everybody out to make sure these people weren't nearly as good as they used to say they are. And, and there's some balance there, obviously, in, in some cases, uh, as, the question, as the question came up in the Q&A, do we you know, glorify those men of the past? And we don't want to glorify them in the sense that we <laughs> put them on the pedestal, as we talked about. But, uh, but on the other hand, they were great men of God with flaws, just like some of our U.S. historical figures were great men with flaws. But, um, but academia has sort of minimized that. And so the, the importance of history has become at most a matter of intellectual curiosity, but certainly not to be imposed upon a young generation who should give their uh, minds and studies to more relevant matters such as cultural studies or gender realities and misunderstandings and things such as that. Those are the more important issues of the day. And if we listen to the voices of the past, we certainly won't make any advances in those issues. <clears throat> but what about Christians then? And we have a Christian audience here. Does history have anything to say to us, anything to teach us? And probably most of us, if not all of us, will say, well, yes, history has something to teach us. Can we learn from its successes and failures? And, of course, the Bible itself is largely historical. I mean, it's, it's in some ways a history book. It's not its primary emphasis, uh, although we do have books that are books of history. Even in the New Testament, we have the book of Acts as a book of history, the history of the early church. The Gospels are historical and have much historical information, but they're not primarily history. So the Bible is historical in nature. And what about great historical events eras and uh, people are they worth studying you may have a favorite or two or three favorite historical figures maybe a Churchill or a Lincoln or, or some something like that um, then um, uh, what about great persons of the past of the church and then that begs the question do you even own a book on church history I won't ask for a raise of hands on that but, it, 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 you know, we, it's funny, we find, when I was a pastor years ago, I didn't ask the question, but I rhetorically made reference to the issue that most people don't have a, a Bible encyclopedia in their home. They, and if you ask them why, they would probably say, well, we can't afford it. But most of those people would have had what is now almost obsolete since you have your 
smartphone or whatever, but a, a hardcover encyclopedia. Most people would have, well, our children need that for school and to look things up. And I'm thinking we need it for intellectual school stuff, but we don't need something to help us navigate the history of and the subjects of Scripture. And it's sort of the way we think. And, it, and I think we tend to think that way about history and church history in particular. But, but then to get more specific, what about the Reformation? For some, it may be interesting. Interesting to bring up for discussion or even argument. Because a lot of interesting things, as we've seen, come out of the Reformation. If you studied it at all, you know that some of the men that we are grateful for did some really weird stuff. Or even things we wouldn't agree with at all. Um, and it should be obvious that we at Vision for Living think that the Reformation is important, else we wouldn't have worked and set aside a time and gone to the expense to have a conference where it's sort of the centerpiece of the subject of our discussion. Um, but then maybe it's better to ask these questions. Why does the Reformation matter and does it still matter today? I grew up in a home where we believed in what was called Baptist success, secessionism. In other words, all true believers in the past and up to the present have been Baptist. You can laugh if you want. Um, and we had a little red book that proved it. Well, we don't still hold to that today, but it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> And so to, we didn't call ourselves Protestants. We were Baptists. And Baptists aren't Protestants. You may have come out of the Catholic Church, but we didn't come out of the Catholic Church. Does it still matter today? Well, my purpose and hope in the next few minutes is to present a short and I hope compelling argument that the answer to these questions is yes. Yes, it matters and it still matters today. And with God's help, I hope to persuade you to carry the banner of reformation to your generation and the generation to come. And I hope when we're finished, you'll see why. So, let's begin, first of all, by talking about the preparation for, the, for biblical reformation. The preparation for biblical reformation. Uh, what led to the reformation that began in the 16th century in the 1500s. What were the events that spawned this history-altering event? You might say that the Reformation was 1500 years in the making. In a sense that's true. The apostolic work of the first century composed the roots of what would be the the powerful resurgence of biblical Christianity uh, in the 1500s and beyond. But let's look at that past that, uh, that led to Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door at the church of Wittenberg. First, let's look at the roots of Christianity. The roots of Christianity. After the ascension of Christ and the day of Pentecost, which we're familiar with, uh, the early church exploded with growth. It, it, we probably can't appreciate being where we are now. There, is, there are places on earth where there's fast 
and, ex- and extensive growth of Christianity. Sort of the African continent's been one of those, and, and Asia has become part of that in other places. But, but it's hard for us to imagine just how quickly Christianity began to roll and grow in the first century. The gospel was quickly taken across the Roman Empire through at least three um, missionary journeys of Paul, if not a fourth. It is believed he may have taken a fourth missionary journey. <clears throat> and then there were others who involved themselves in missionary activities. Some became missionaries almost uh, by accident. Someone like the Ethiopian eunuch who met Philip on the road there. And Philip, led by the Spirit, shared the gospel with him. He was converted, baptized, and probably went right on back to Ethiopia. And who knows what happens after that. But those are the kinds of things that were happening in the early church. Um, So northern Africa was very soon evangelized and gospel activity spread to places all over the known world and sometimes even beyond what they knew. In the second and third centuries, the growth of the church continued until Christianity exerted a significant presence and influence across the Roman Empire and had begun to go to other places. Those were the roots of Christianity. Then there was resistance to Christianity. The growth of Christianity, which came as people received the good news of salvation in Christ, happened in spite of, and perhaps to some degree because of, the persecution that almost immediately arose against it. The initial persecution was from traditional Judaism, but by the latter part of the first century, Rome was venting its fury upon this relatively new religion known as a Jewish sect, just a Jewish cult. In the person of Nero, who reportedly fiddled while Rome burned, then blamed Christians for the larceny, and then used Christians as torches around the empire. The century ended with the persecution of a fellow by the name of Domitian, who enforced emperor worship that Matt referred to earlier, and charged Christians with with treason for not worshiping Caesar as Lord. There was a long line of persecution actually from then until it ended with a fellow by the name of Diocletian at about the beginning of uh, or a few years into the fourth century around 320-324. So those that was the resistance that came the early resistance that came and went on into some uh, some years of the, the first millennium after Christ. Then we see something of the reception of Christianity the reception of Christianity. Something of historic and religious, religious significance happened in the early 4th century, the 300s, when Constantine became emperor of Rome. That was about 3, AD 324. Suddenly, persecution ceased. Christians suddenly got back some of their rights the privileges, they suddenly could own property again. The story has it that Constantine saw a vision. A vision of a cross. And he believed this was his sign that he should convert to Christianity. He was subsequently baptized, whatever form that took. And then he required his armies to do the same. So if I'm going to be a Christian, we're all going to be Christians, was sort of the, the mood. 
And now Christians whose faith had for centuries been tested by persecution and who had found it necessary to count the cost of following Christ enjoyed the blessing of Rome's favor. No longer was Christianity the bane and blight of the Roman Empire. Now it was the recognized religion of Rome. This was the formal reception of Christianity. Then we see after that the regression of Christianity. If present day church life has not convinced us, history ought to affirm that numbers are not necessarily a positive thing. Now, they're not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, 3,000 people were converted right off on the day of Pentecost and thousands came to Christ quickly there in the early church. Not a bad thing. But they aren't necessarily a good thing. <clears throat> and what happened is that the church began to grow even more numerically, at least outwardly. But faltered significantly as the biblical stalwart it had been up to that time. Even before Constantine's so-called conversion, paganism and false religion had begun to creep into Christianity. But this new involvement of the empire into the life of the church presented a whole new challenge. And it reminds me, uh, when I was growing up, and I think there's still some of this, of the sort of um, infatuation with celebrity Christianity. I guess we still have that to some degree, but I remember, you know, some fella or woman would be converted, and, and I'm not saying they weren't, but then we want to have them at a crusade and want them to give their testimony, and, and we throw them out in front of people and put pressures on them that they ought not to have to face. But not only that, we get excited if, if that fellow, that person would just get converted, man, could they do a lot for Jesus? We forget that God doesn't choose many mighty and, you know, many wonderful in the world's eyes to do what he wants to do. But never that's another story. But that, that kind, of, um, kind of mix, that kind of struggle is, is going on here. And <clears throat> this challenge that was coming to the, now, to the church now was much more insidious, much more undetectable and deceptive than any of its other attackers had been. Political acceptance turned out to be no friend to the church. And so that's at least up to a point, a path that led to Reformation. This is what happened from the early church up to, um, up to uh, a certain point in church history. We'll, we'll continue following the path, but we want to talk now a little bit about the passion for biblical Reformation. What causes men or women, for that matter, to respond to error and deficiencies with such passion? What happened that began to stir people and work in the hearts of Christians, genuine Christians, to cause them to question what they saw and what they heard and what was going on that was called church. What circumstances fueled the flame that became the Protestant Reformation, that unquenchable flame that Daniel referred to when he referred to one of the books he read about the Reformation? Well, one was the need for doctrinal clarity. The need for doctrinal clarity. The letters of the New Testament were often written to address doctrinal error that was already slipping into Christianity in the first century. Colossians was written to address a sort of uh, 
beginning form of Gnosticism, 1 John as well, and the Gospel of John. Other books addressed error that was coming into the church. Early forms of doctrinal perversion, which would appear later as full-blown heresy. Church councils would address such issues as the person and nature of Christ and other issues. We were talking outside before we uh, ate dinner. There was a fellow by the name of Arius who had trouble believing that Jesus was actually God. He had trouble with the whole idea of the Trinity. And so he was teaching. He decided this is not true. Jesus was a man, sure, and it took a man to die for man's sins, but he was not God, and, the tr and God was not triune. Well, Constantine called a council. They got together, discussed it, and hammered this thing out and decided that Scripture did in indeed teach that the... Um, that the Godhead was triune and that Christ was of the same substance and essence as God, the Father. But you know that when you hear there's nothing new under the sun, that's exactly true because we see that some of the forms of that in Mormonism and, and Jehovah's Witness theology about Christ. So it's like, this is not new things. These, these were hammered out years ago. But these kind of things happen to clarify doctrines such issues as baptism, its mode and what it actually meant. Uh, what part works has to play in salvation. These became issues of controversy. Creeds were formulated to clarify and codify doctrinal understanding. There was a thing called the Pelagian Controversy. Augustine was a bishop at a place called Hippo in North Africa. And Augustine said, and I guess it got published, somehow it got around, he said, this is a pretty radical statement for his day, but he said something like this. Lord, command what you will, and grant what you command. Now, if you think about that for a minute, you, we could have a long discussion about that, that comment. Grant what you will, or command what you will, and grant what you command. Now, there was a fellow by the name of Pelagius who took issue with that statement. Because Pelagius believed that man was basically, or had in him some good. Some ability to do what was right and good. And his belief was that if God said believe, then men had the ability to believe and that there was still left over, even after the fall, some goodness. That the fall didn't bring an eradication of goodness or complete death and complete blindness. And so that whole, there was a whole controversy there about that. Uh, those kinds of things were going on because of the need for doctrinal clarity. Some of these things we take for granted. I mean, we take for granted here, we would also, well, sure, I believe in the Trinity, and I believe that the Spirit and the Son are co-equal with the Father. We believe other things about the bodily resurrection. We have certain beliefs about baptism and those kinds of things. We take them for granted. They wrestled with these things, sometimes for years. And in spite of these efforts, the church began to develop into what would become the Roman Catholic Church. And so much so that while there were probably people who didn't necessarily believe all that the Roman Catholic Church taught, that's all people knew by and large, that that became church. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org. Or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. We hope you can join us next week on the P4C podcast as we listen to part two of this message. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for His glory each and every day.